first thing we have to have this conversation about is when is enough enough, right? Um, and when I say enough is enough, right, there's this fundamental, and I know you're close to, you know, kind of the learning, right, that even in B school right now, they're wrestling with this question about the historic idea of what business has been and the reality that consumption at all costs and growth at all costs is not good for our economy and our planet as a whole. And if we don't have a planet to live on, it's hard to worry about having an economy that works, right? And so how do we start to really pull back the layers a little bit about what some of this stuff means and how it's manifested in our practices economically and then how that has subsequently created conditions that have not been helpful in growing our economy and our systems in different ways as well. Welcome to another edition of Be The Change Georgia, where we amplify the voices of the inspiring business leaders surrounding the B Corp and social impact movements across the Southeast to help you learn how to build your legacy at the intersection of people, planet, purpose, and profit. Today, Nathan had the pleasure of sitting down with Sterling Johnson, the director for the Partnership for Southern Equity's Just Opportunity Portfolio. Sterling oversees administration of PSE's economic justice programs, including re-granting, small business support, and workforce development initiatives. He also provides subject matter expertise as a facilitator and consultant. Prior to joining PSE, he spent nearly four years with Atlanta-based law firm Griffin & Strong PC as Director of Public Policy, providing consulting and project management services to over 40 states and local governments, nonprofit organizations, and private businesses nationwide. In part two of this interview, You'll hear Sterling discuss how PSE is working with its partners to advance economic inclusion as we navigate another season of economic downturn, as well as business's role in accounting for economic inclusion through capitalistic endeavors. Okay, let's jump right into this episode with Sterling Johnson. Over to you, Nathan. So, Sterling, I'd love to then talk a little bit more about what you're doing at the Partnership for Southern Equity um, with so many low wealth and communities of color still reeling from from the impacts of the last recession, on top of of all the historical economic injustice, um, how is PSC working with its partners to advance the economic inclusion agenda as we navigate what looks like it could be? I'm more optimistic than others. Another economic downturn or inflation, but jobs are being created. Who knows what's happening right now? Yeah. Yeah, you know what? It's a very interesting time, I think, in the history. And I think this is really a perfect time, if I want to say it, to start reckoning with what we have created of our economy, right? You know, we see the indicators traditionally are all over the place, right? We have no, and really right now, and I was thinking about this the other day, that we're at a point where engaging in our traditional forms of commerce is as much of a crapshoot as it's ever been. Right. Nobody knows when to get into and out of the market. Nobody knows how to predict the next wave. Nobody knows whether it's a recession coming or is the economy strong. And it's really illustrating the, the fundamental flaw with the way that our economy has operated. It has been really based on a subjective number and level of criteria that we said, hey, this is the determinant of whether we've got a strong economy or not. And that within that conversation, right, a lot of it is leaning into the idea that we know how to create the conditions that will show us the way to success. But we know that that historically has not been true for everyone. Right. And that because as wealth has become more centralized in fewer hands, then it starts to leave fewer points of opportunity and access for the collective uh, after that point. Right. And so how do we start to really start not just thinking about 
navigating our way through or uh, whatever approaching economic storm is coming, right? How do we start thinking about the way in which we have actively created the conditions for an economy that is not only not working for everyone, but soon is not going to be working for the majority of people, right? And so how do we start to wrestle with this and understand that there's some things that we can change? I love the quote, and this is part of, to answer your question, why I get into this work and the work that we do at Partnership for Southern Equity, um, that, and it's uh, Marika Van Dornick, um, and she is one of the, the leading champions right now of donor economics, right? And she talked about this in one of her articles, that she said that economics is a, a man-made science, right? Not a natural one. And so we can change it, right? We can think about this conversation differently. So that's a lot of what we do with the Partnership for Southern Equity. Uh, we champion and advance institutional practice and policies that are really looking to reshape the way that our economy can function as a tool to drive economic equity, right? And economic opportunity for everyone. Um, we are focused on racial justice and, and shared prosperity, right? And so how do we all benefit from this idea that our economy can grow and it can be done in a way that we're all positioned to, to benefit from it versus just a, a select few. And so how do we start to think through the way in which our work is happening institutionally? Of course, our, we lead with race. We're focused on the idea and the history right around black and brown individuals and communities that they have been used as tools to drive economic extraction historically, but that we also have to get away from the systems that still start to pull value from black and brown communities or that reduce the benefit that can be returned to them in order to really drive the ultimate profit for some other individuals and institutions. And so um, right now, in, in not only responding to it, we have to do kind of a little bit of a triage method, right? We have to be mindful of, one, not you know painting in broad strokes. There are some people who came out of the last recession, um, Black-owned businesses who were doing quite well, right? That they were very um, mindful in the work that they did. They were able to pivot their operations in certain ways. They were able to come up with new innovations. And I think that speaks to a testament of just Black economics as a whole, the resourcefulness of people who have historically had underinvestment and how do they start to navigate the waters into a space where they can ultimately have everything that they need to be successful and that they will ultimately come out of that okay, right? But then there's another group of people who have not gotten their sea legs yet in the sense that they're still trying to figure out what does this mean for them and their business and their models and their communities, et cetera. And so when I say we have to triage, we have to be thoughtful about what are the immediate needs of the people who are at the risk of greatest disruption or closure? Um, how do we start to be mindful of responding to the needs of workers, right? And worker needs and benefits. Um, and then how do we make sure that ultimately whatever comes out of this, this set of circumstances, whether that be federal investment, um, et cetera, that we're ultimately channeling that opportunity into um, places for black and brown communities and business owners and entrepreneurs to still be able to benefit. And so we got a number of things that we're doing at PSE right now that I think fit that mold. Um, the most prominent um, initiative right now coming out of the organization is what we call our Justice 40 Accelerator. And so we're working with a number of national partners right now about how do we start to, one, deconstruct the federal procurement delivery system. We know with ARPA funds and you know, all these other federal funds that are coming down the, the pipe, right, that a lot of that is going to be deployed through procurement. And that procurement historically has been very inequitable and very inefficient in being able to distribute access points to black and brown communities and entrepreneurs of color, right? And so how do we want understand this delivery method in a way that we can speak to the way that's historically broken down? But then how do we also start to build the capacity of institutions and organizations, whether that be grassroots communities, frontline communities, or you know, communities of color and institutions within those communities and entrepreneurs within those communities as well, to be able to benefit right from when they, these dollars are dropping, these grants are going out, 
that how can they ultimately still be able to compete and win, right, for some of those dollars that are coming down so that they can ultimately be um, the holders of resources that can really reshape and change their community. We've had tremendous success with that program so far. I think we're on our second cohort now, if I recall, um, and we've had several that have gone through that first cohort who won federal grant dollars. Um, several of them won you know, million-dollar grants, et cetera. So there's some great work coming out of that initiative. Um, I also want to talk about some of our work right now in rebuilding and strengthening the Georgia safety net. And so we have what we call it the, the crux of all of our work in our portfolios, um, the circles, right? And these are just places at which we're trying to build connectivity between institutional actors, community members, and those within our ecosystem so that we can have a, a unified discussion and be able to move and speak to you know different opportunities and policies as they start to make themselves available to us. And so when we're thinking about the way in which we're starting to build and rebuild Georgia safety net, we know that we have underinvested in resources, whether that be TANF funds, SNAP dollars, et cetera, that are really in the position of helping people who are experiencing economic downturn right now. And so we know that with the, the coming waves or that, you know, kind of the cyclical waves of our economy, that when the economy is rough and when there's a lack of confidence in that economy, that there's going to be less access, right, to jobs. And then the jobs ultimately that are within our economy and need to be able to, to supplement and pay people livable wages to give them access to the sustenance that they need to really be able to thrive in their communities as well. And so thinking about one on one side, this conditions around what are the safety net? How do we start to rebuild Georgia safety net advocacy on the needs that go into that? We're working with other partners like uh, GBPI, Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, their Prosper Georgia Coalition, um, several others right about what are the conditions on that side of the house? And then the other is, how do we set the conditions for workers' rights, right, that they have access to the tools and everything that they need um, to be able to get access to quality jobs, right, and resources? And then, of course, the third piece of that we're focusing on right now, we call our Green Economy Initiative, that how do we start anticipating the future of work as well, right? You know, these emerging industries and areas um, and that historically, right, the first mover advantage goes to the person with the resources and the access. And we know that they ultimately get the first and greatest benefit from new industries as they emerge. And so how can we start being strategic about supporting uh, black and brown youth or black and brown individuals who might be under-resourced or have historically been um, under-invested um, in, right, in the way that they can grow their economic capacity or their technical skills in different ways to benefit from things like the emerging green and gray economy, right? That we know a lot of these federal funds coming down the pipe are going to be associated with infrastructure development and so how do we make sure that as people within communities, both on the job side and as entrepreneurs, right, that we often don't think about, you know, this conversation on economic equity often stops with quality jobs. We want to be thoughtful about broadening that discussion to include entrepreneurs of color as well so that we can get out of the paradigm where black and brown people are only labor within a market that's looking to take and consume from them and that they're owners within a space that is able to kind of supplement and build their capacity where they'll supplement and go out and build additional capacity through the hiring of people from their respective communities and helping to create different futures and trajectories for everyone. And so we're involved in a number of different things right now organizationally. And of course, that's not in addition to our research and policy work um, and consulting work that we do organizationally as well. But, you know, our work at PSE is very multifaceted, but it's an exciting time to be on the vanguard right now. Yeah. And, and, and you know, you talk about the, the cutting edge and what's next and, and you're on it because it is that... It, it is that reimagining of capitalism. Capitalism is only the, the, the privately held goods and, you know, the, the market is privately owned. That's it. Um, the rest of it we've we've constructed in our heads, but it's we can 
we can deconstruct it and then reimagine it any way we want to. Yeah. Um, yeah. So man, that's that's incredible. Uh, that's a that's a lot of work. Um, it's 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 a it's a fun time to be doing this work. There's so much opportunity if you can look past the fact that so much needs to be fixed. Um, there's a lot of great opportunity there for us to look back in 30, 40 years on our you know our collective abundance mindset legacy and see what see what we did yeah, together yeah for sure and you know it, it's a scary time right you know because you don't have all the the you can don't no one has the foresight to predict what's coming next right but we do know that i think that history can tell us if we pay close enough attention that there are harmful practices that have not been producing economic return for us in the way that we want to and desire to see that occur right and so as long as we understand that and ground that reality in history Right, that we can then subsequently move this conversation forward at the same time. And so, uh, like I said, it's an exciting time. And so all we can do is just be responsible with the work that touches our hand and try to have as much positive influence as possible. Let's just say, uh, maybe, I don't know, you're speaking to a room full of influential CEOs. What would be something you might ask them with respect to how businesses are seriously accounting for their role in economic inclusion? through their mm-hmm. capitalistic endeavors? What would be the, yeah. the message you would you would want to get across? Well, we um, are engaging in a little bit of this. Like of all the things that we do, I'm, I didn't talk a lot about our Just Business Roundtable, which is a corporate table that we've set for individuals within the corporate space who want to see this work change and, and manifest in corporate racial equity, right, in the advancing of that. Um, and the first thing we have to have this conversation about is when is enough enough, Right. Um, and when I say enough is enough, right, there's this fundamental, and I know you're close to, you know, kind of the learning, right, that even in B school right now, they're wrestling with this question about the historic idea of what business has been and the reality that consumption at all costs and growth at all costs is not good for our economy and our planet as a whole. And if we don't have a planet to live on, it's hard to worry about having an economy that works, right? And so, how do we start to really pull back the layers a little bit about what some of this stuff means and how it's manifested in our practices economically and then how that has subsequently created conditions that have not been helpful in growing our economy and our systems in different ways as well. And so I would have to start there. Right. You know, we talk a lot about organizationally and we really lead with this idea of values that, you know, Nathaniel, our, our founder and chief equity officer, he always says, you know, that we need a values revolution. Right that what we value is what we invest in and what we invest in illustrates how we want to see ourselves not only individually positioned within the world, but that ultimately that if we're ultimately pushing our own intentions first and we're pulling from everything around us in order to elevate ourselves, right, then that's ultimately a selfish endeavor. And so how do we start to wrestle with this idea of the things that we value then subsequently showing up in the way that we do business? Right. And the way that we invest in our communities and the way that we grow our businesses responsibly. And so this idea of when is enough enough would be the first thing I would have to ask. If you are intending to grow your business, no one's telling you not you should not have profit. No one's telling you that you should not generate wealth. But no one is saying at the same time, when is that responsible point? And that's why I really have been leaning a lot into the idea around donor economics, that donor economics fundamentally is this idea that there's a floor and there's a ceiling that businesses should be able to operate within that protect not only the people within the space, but the planet as a whole. 
right? And so when is that cap, right? Like if you're selling widgets, you know, by guys, all means, like be the best widget seller you can be. But at the point where the widgets you sell start to intrude on one, the economic sustainability of the community that you serve or people around you, right? Are you diminishing profits in a way or diminishing uh, your, your outputs in a way to maximize profits? Are you underpaying your staff? Are you pulling from, you know, different institutions and, and like I said, that extractive mentality? And how do we start to really wrestle with this idea that we can subsequently invest in people and invest in community and it's only going to position us for, you know, sustained further long-term success? Um, the other thing like I said is, is wrestling with the idea around business changing. I know you've had a lot of this conversation, right? That there's been this idea that there's been no space for social utility in the way business gets done and really challenging that assumption. Um, and, and the third being that there's this idea that government and business are fundamentally op opposed, right? When in reality, if we really look at the history of how economies have been built and industries grown, that our government has played a central role in determining who winners and losers are. Right. So this is very much so a conversation about the way in which government relates to business and how business relates to community. And again, creating this idea that we're all economically connected. Right. Not only through our endeavors as people who occupy this space, but through this idea of just the ecosystem as a whole. And so how do we more responsibly work with each other? Right. To make sure that we have all the conditions that we need for success. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would definitely just start with those. And there's a number of different places we can go as far as like kind of the ways investments are made in black and brown communities or institutions, et cetera, um, that would be on the horizon. But I would definitely start the conversation there. Yeah, I love that question. How much is enough? And I, I you know, it's not an anti-capitalist, you know, no profit, no purpose, no margin, no mission. But, you know, if you're relying on like, you know minimum you know barely paying minimum wage and no benefits and i saw that world firsthand when i took my sabbatical year before b school was working a part-time job at 20 hours a week at eight dollars an hour and all these people where it's like this isn't a hard work issue this is a this their business model relies on really cheap labor and not having to play benefits like right exactly and exactly. we need to we need to rethink the acceptability of that as a business practice of like is this really the best we can do it's just make, you know, these, uh, you know, everybody I worked with, there's three, four, you know, part-time jobs yeah. on the bus before you get up and, and getting home after you've gone to bed. Right. Um, and getting ready to do it all over again, right. The next day, you know, yep. um, I, I think too, it's, um, like I said, it's just a, a lot of really interesting things happening right now in our economy as a whole. And the crazy part is that we're seeing now that there are jobs that we can't fill, Right. <laughs> And the question becomes, well, how does that happen? Right. And a lot of times it's a function of a lack of foresight. But I think a lot of times also it's a lack of investment in people. Right. To be able to position them to be able to come and work in this space. Right. It's like now it's like everybody's playing catch up. Like we need the people. We need the people. We've got the jobs and we don't have anybody to really support them. And that's just really a, a function of us under investing in people and institutions that are designed to be creating avenues to our future workforce. And so, you know, in wrestling with all of this stuff, right, that we've got to really be thinking about the connection between the future of our economy and the idea when I think about social utility, right, this idea that it's charity, right? It's, this isn't charity, right? Like you're investing in the future viability of your own business model as much as you're investing in the health and wellness of people. 
And so it's not just like good for goodness sake to the title that we were discussing and talking about, you know, ahead of time. This isn't like the idea that I'm just giving something away with no future return is that I'm making an investment in people. And I believe that these people, whoever they are, right, can get access to this industry and they can create a better life and future for themselves and their children. But you have to have the the functions in place to be able to really support people along that continuum. And um, that's a conversation that has to come from the top down. It has to be an industry commitment that we're going to invest in people the right way. And um, so that's, like I said, that, that question about values, this question about how much is enough, and this question about what can we reallocate to make sure that that's a future that's going to be supportive of everyone is definitely where we would have to start that conversation. Yeah. And thinking about retention and some of these things, I know there's another podcast on this channel called The Great Retention. And thinking about that versus... Yeah, everybody keeps looking at this like why aren't people taking these jobs and why are people quitting and it's like the 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 signs and the warning but like everything's there it's the answer is very obvious but everybody wants to pretend like it's right <laughs> some sherlock holmes mystery exactly well you know we feign ignorance sometimes and we don't like the answer or know what we've got to do and just don't want to do it right it's like we're looking for another way forward and um and i'm not saying that there aren't other ways and we'll figure out what those things are when the time comes but at the end of the day right it's really as simple as that we're not creating quality jobs and we're not creating access to the jobs that we need for all people to be able to benefit from and so how do we make sure that we're going back to the drawing board and rethinking the way that we're recruiting the way that we're rebuilding and the way that we invest in people um to make sure that they're ultimately the ones who can benefit you know yeah no i i, I love that and i, I want to I hate to close it, which means I have to ask my last question. I could sit here and just keep talking about these. There's so many rabbit holes, and it's yeah. one of the toughest parts of hosting where you just want to start like philosophizing on where we're going with this. Co- anyway, um, keep it on track, Nathan. Um, what does, and we've talked about the amazing work you're doing, the amazing work Partnership for Southern Equity is doing. Uh, we've talked about kind of the shifting paradigms and, and kind of the almost the demand curve shift that's happened within capitalism. Mm-hmm. What makes you optimistic what gives you hope that you know i mentioned earlier that like 30 40 years from now we're tailgating at a georgia game and you and i could talk about this like look back in the rearview mirror and go wow um the change that's happened and we got to be a part of it what does give you hope that that you're going to be able to have that conversation and and what gives you I don't know what gets you out of bed in the morning thinking like, man, we're going to, I'm going to change the world a little bit today. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. Um, I would say what gives me hope, you know, one is, is my faith, right? I choose to be hopeful. Right. And I, and I say that because it's really easy to look at all the indicators and all the conditions and our political environment and just say like, you know, we've still got, I mean, even as we're trying to advance the ball, we're still playing defense against people who are pushing agendas politically and other that are in opposition to this entire conversation. And I was talking with a mentor of mine um, and and he mentioned to me that he said, Hey, if you pay enough attention to history, close enough attention to history, that there have always been these waves and counter movements of progress. But he says, every time we advance, they'll push back. Right. But then he said, then we advance again and we get the ball just a little bit further. Right. And so sometimes it's a matter of stepping back off the ledge and placing this moment within the context of history, right? That there's a lot of things that are happening that are the same old playbook, right? And so I think that the more, and that's why I'm mentioning just what I've been reading and where I've been drawing inspiration from, whether that be Baldwin or Dr. King or or Alice Walker or Bill Hooks, right? All of these different learners, right? These spaces, and, and you talk about the philosophy behind it. 
it's really helped me to understand that as much as there's a history that we're coming from and a future to where we're going, that some of the solutions to the problems we've been trying to solve are really in our past, not as far as innovation into like this brand new future. And how do we start to really honor that wisdom in a way to start to integrate it into this idea and the realities of our economy tomorrow? I think, you know, I draw inspiration from conversations like these, right, from like partners like yourselves and other who are acknowledging that, hey, there's an issue fundamentally here that we need to address. Right. And then figuring out, you know, through solidarity with one another. And I always think about being values aligned, how we can start to chart that path forward together versus, like I said, it being no one has a monopoly on wisdom and knowledge. Right. I don't know it all. And I know that there are things that I need to learn from yourselves and other, and that there are people from, you know, you might say, Hey, like this person over here knows a little bit about this thing and what's coming down the horizon. And so the more that we create spaces like these for courageous conversations, uh, for courageous inquiry, uh, to wrestle with some of those, like you talked about, like when you that feigned ignorance, whereas everybody's want to pretend like we don't know what to do, but we really know what to do, right? The more we just create space to just be in community with each other and to say, Hey, how can we do this together? You know, I find a lot of inspiration from that. And so, you know, whether that be on the corporate side, on the grassroots side and with other partners like yourselves, you know, I think that there's a condition being set that people are not only acknowledging there's a problem, but thinking actively about what the solutions are. And so, um, like I said, I choose to be hopeful first, but I think that there are the right people trying to answer the right questions right now. And uh, that you know gives me a lot of inspiration as well. Yeah, as long as the hopeful people keep banding together and putting smart people like you behind it with the research and the policy and everything and putting that whole picture together. We all have a, a value to add to this conversation that collectively makes the most informed um, progress driven uh, results. Yeah. I, I always said, I think about life as a puzzle, right? That if we've all got different pieces of it, like it's not like a painting where, you know, individually which stroke is going to create certain outputs. But it's more of a puzzle that there's a lived experience that I have and an experience that you have and someone else over here, and, you know, different you know, experiences technically and like kind of in our learning and education, all these things we bring together. That's what creates the full picture. Right. And there's sometimes that we might get a piece that we're not exactly sure what to do with it yet. But, you know, that it's going to go in the puzzle. Right. And that's where I think this idea around exclusion and extraction is like we've had pieces that we've completely said don't fit in our picture. And we can't get to our fullest final form of whatever it is that we're going to be creating until we start finding ways to intentionally include that. Um, and so, like I said, the more that we're on that path, you know, together um, in solidarity, right, and we see that value in everyone and that we start to really integrate that into our economic practice. Um, you know, I think that we're going to be setting the conditions for a new and better tomorrow, whatever that looks like. Well, I love it. I'm going to stop it there because I don't think you, I don't, yeah, I don't think you can top that one. I love that puzzle analogy too, where it's like, yeah, we're never going to complete the puzzle if we piece is missing. Yeah. Um, where can people continue to follow you, Partnership for Southern Equity, social media? Is there any channel that's more used than the others? Yeah, um, this is probably more of a James question, but of course, Partnership for Southern Equity. Um, we've got our Twitter handle. We've got our Instagram page. I don't know which one we use more. I think we kind of use all of them equally, um, but you can follow Partnership for Southern Equity on Instagram at PS Equity. Um, on Twitter, I believe it's PS Equity Matters. Um, James, correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> um, you know, we've also got, of course, individually, you know, I don't do a lot of social media, but I've got, of course, my LinkedIn um, anyone can look me up on LinkedIn under my name, just Sterling Johnson um, under the Partnership for Southern Equity. 
and then I use my Instagram. But it, truthfully, my Instagram is more of a creative endeavor for me. I do some digital organizing there. And of course, if there's information that needs to be moved. Um, but you can follow me at, at Long Live Sterlo, uh, S-T-E-R-L-O. That's one of my childhood nicknames. So um, like I said, just looking forward to continuing the conversation and always open to partnering and seeing how we can cont- uh, continue to grow this movement for racial equity and economic justice. It's awesome. Well, Sterlo, uh, I appreciate it. <laughs> For sure, for um sure. no and team linkedin band together um but yeah no thank you so much for coming on i mean i've always this is the most fun part of this podcast is having incredible conversations and the fact that it's out there for the world to listen to and learn from and be inspired by um really appreciate you coming by yeah for sure i appreciate again the opportunity to to be here and like to look forward to not only continuing to work with you um but for any listeners out there like that hopefully that they find a way to get plugged in and you know we'll be able to continue to work and move this uh, agenda forward yep do it together That's awesome it. thanks sterling thanks so much all right thanks nathan thanks everyone Well, that wraps up another edition of Be The Change Georgia. We're grateful as always for the opportunity to serve you with this content and grow this incredible community of purpose-driven B Corp leaders. If you haven't already, we would be grateful for you to rate the show wherever you get your podcast by simply tapping the number of stars you think it deserves and sharing it with a friend. This helps us get the word out and continue to use our collective influence as a force for good. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help from our production team at Chat With Leaders Media. Learn how you can launch your own podcast to grow your business at chatwithleaders.com. Thanks again for listening and now go be a leader worth following.